Welcome to Take a Seat, where we sit down with experts on a wide range of topics related to the science of human flourishing. I'm your host, Dr. Nick Holton. I'm a coach, consultant, and speaker in the field of optimal human functioning. Whether you're someone trying to build your best self or a better community, we've got something for you. So take a seat. Welcome back in, folks, to Take a Seat. This week, we sat down with Dr. Matt Lee of the Harvard Flourishing Program. Now, I'm not going to tell you too much about Matt. He's going to introduce himself here in just a minute at the start of the episode. I'll just say that Matt is an expert in really the science of flourishing, and he directs a lot of the research that Harvard does around this very topic. Our conversation kind of dove into some of the basic fundamental components of human flourishing. And then, of course, we spent quite a bit of time talking about, you know, what that means for systems of education and the extent to which ours is probably a little antiquated to accomplish some of these very important and meaningful goals. So really interesting conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Here is us taking a seat with Dr. Matt Lee. Okay, Matt, let's, uh, let's start here. Why don't you just tell uh, us and our audience a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do? Great. Thanks, Nick. I'm the Director of Empirical Research at the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard University, which is located within the Institute for Quantitative Social Science. And we have a very keen interest in integrating the deep wisdom of the humanities with rigorous social science research, primarily quantitative, um, but all of a number of us have done qualitative research and mixed methods research as well. Um, but we want to make sure that our investigations of flourishing are well informed by philosophy, theology, and other disciplines. And so we have a book out um, just yesterday, actually, came out with Oxford University Press. I already purchased it, by the way. I already bought it. Oh, great. Thanks. Well, it's, it's freely available. It's an open access download if anyone would like the PDF from Oxford's website. It's called Measuring Wellbeing, and it's about interdisciplinary perspectives. And so we're very, um, very interested to learn. I'm a sociologist actually by background but um will you go we actually go into your background a little bit because that, that was going to lead us or we were going to be led to that point as well so yeah tell us a little bit about how you got to this point well you know it's interesting that my earliest research was um within the field of criminology and so i studied um criminal homicide mostly but other crimes aggravated assault robbery and those kinds of things and as you might imagine, it's, um, it's somewhat depressing uh, looking at the dark side of human nature all the time. So I started teaching a class on love, uh, an undergraduate uni you know, university course on love. And that led to um, research on altruism, on religious experience and the connection between um, sort of spiritual empowerment and benevolent service to others. And then from there, a broader consideration of flourishing. So I've actually changed my uh, path quite a bit, but I actually think that, um, that studying something like criminal homicide gives you some insight into the things that are missing that would otherwise promote a flourishing life, the rich nutrients in the soil from which, you know, um, flowers might spring. 
Um, so I think it's two sides of the same coin. And, and in fact, some of my research has um, overlapped criminology with benevolent service. And, and we find that, for example, with adolescents in recovery from um, drugs and alcohol and uh, other forms of delinquency, um, that it's better to give than to receive. And that if they are put in a position where Stephen they can give, yeah. yes, where they can give help to others, um, they do much better. And so it is necessary to um, to provide sort of compassion, but it's um, to people. But really what people need is to, to see their love make a difference in the great words of uh, Lundy Bancroft, who, who wrote this book called The Joyous Recovery. You know, we, we have this fundamental need to, um, to be of benefit to others. And um, if we open up pathways um, that, and I think that's where education um, can be more intentional. So just to just to skip ahead a little bit, but that's that's where I'm that's where I'm headed. <laughs> yeah, me too. And I, I'm definitely going to want to dive into that. I want to extend your metaphor for a second. You know, you you mentioned seeds and soil, and we often use the idea of like self actualization as blooming and and flourishing and be like becoming what one is really meant to kind of become, right? At, uh, one's best self, so to speak. And and you you know for context. Shipley, which which runs this program, you know, we kind of have this vision of that excellence that really is a three-legged stool. It includes sort of achievement, growth, and level, right, in various domains, um, not only academic, I would say. But the other two legs are really like individual well-being and collective well-being, right? And I think what I hear you saying is the seeds matter, but you really can't separate what happens to the seeds from the soil that surrounds it, mm -hmm. right? And I, I think you would probably say that's in part why Harvard, we can get start to get into the measures a little bit, why Harvard really has, well, you have the individual flourishing metric, but you also have a community flourishing, mm -hmm. right? Okay, Harvard's objective is really, you can correct me if I'm wrong, add or, or lend really rigorous science, right? Mm -hmm. And blend it with um, things that might be in, in some ways considered kind of softer sciences, right? Philosophy and the liberal arts and things like that, if, if science at all, right? Mm -hmm. And really kind of find, I think it's not an either or, it's a both and, right? Yes, that's, a, that's absolutely right. Great. So Harvard's got this, this mission, you're helping execute it, right? One of the big takeaways have been these two measures, individual flourishing, community flourishing. Will you just tell us a little bit about those measures, kind of what makes them up? Sure. So one of the things that we've tried to do is to find domains that nearly everyone can agree upon. And so there are other aspects of uh, of flourishing that may not be included in these sort of baseline measures, but we want uh, broad uptake. And so we have a measure, for example, of spiritual well-being. And for, for spiritual people, you might want to include that, but not everybody would want that necessarily. So, so our measures, um, I'll start with the individual flourishing measure. We, we frame that in terms of five fundamental domains. And then there's a sixth domain that sort of enables um, us to achieve these other ends. But the, the five domains are happiness and life satisfaction, physical and mental health, meaning and purpose, character and virtue, 
and close social relationships. Almost all people value these domains as ends in themselves, not merely uh, so they can attain other ends, um, but for themselves, for their own sake. We would add um, freedom from worry about financial and material uh, problems as an enabling domain of flourishing at the individual level. So if you're if you're constantly worried about your physical safety or your ability to pay your rent or something, um, that might interfere with the attainment of these other aim, uh, other ends. But um, we see this as sort of a consensus model that most, you know, we, we get very little pushback on these domains. Most most people do seem to value them. And then at the community level, and I should say these are subjective. And so we do stress the value of measuring um, subjective and objective um, aspects of well-being. In other words, for the audience, like the way this measure works is you give this measure to a person, they provide what are called self-report, you know, responses. And so they're basically saying, here's how I'm assessing my own state right. in this particular moment, right? That's right. And, and in fact, you know, someone who, you know, has multiple physical health conditions might feel pretty good and might appraise their physical health in relatively good uh, terms, even though they're dealing with a number of, of illnesses. And so it's important that we understand both the objective and the subjective there. And the same thing applies at the community level. You know, we, we would look at a number of self-reported domains of community well-being, including, for example, whether you trust the people in your community. This seems to be a big one. The Edelman Trust um, Index seems to suggest worldwide that trust in social institutions is at an all-time low. So it's important to ask people for their own uh, perception of whether they trust their community, they trust the leaders in their community, and so that's one, but you know, we can also ask more about more objective conditions, um, such as the infrastructure. You know, are, are you sitting in a car for an hour and a half commuting every day? That is, is probably going to be, um, to pose some difficulties for your overall flourishing. Um, political instability, um, economic disruptions, all of these things can be assessed objectively, but we don't want to forget about the fact that, you know, some people can go through um, very difficult experiences objectively, but they have this inner resilience and they're actually flourishing from a subjective standpoint quite well. Um, and I would say initially in spite of these challenges, but perhaps for some people because of these challenges, these challenges wake us up sometimes. Yeah. Victor Frankl and whatnot. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so we can think about flourishing. I, I've been recently considering intersystemic flourishing, um, connecting the individual, you know, the organizations in which we're embedded, whether that's a school or a business organization or community organization, broader communities, and then ultimately um, planetary dimensions of well-being. And, and I know um, donut economics is becoming popular with people, this idea that you don't want to meet human needs in a way that overshoots the carrying capacity of the, the larger ecosystem. And so some so flourishing has to human flourishing has to be balanced with planetary 
well-being as well. And we can't say that we're um, fully flourishing if, um, if we're wreaking havoc on the planet. And so this is where I think it's, it's really helpful to, you know, going back to Maslow, who talked about self-actualization, later in his life, he talked about self-transcendence. And so it's not primarily about us achieving our potential independent of the impact that we're having on others. It's about how do we achieve, how do we express our potential in ways that benefit others? And so that's where we, we start to look at regenerative processes rather than extractive or, or degenerative processes. And I think education has a, a strong role to play there as well. That's great. I'd love to like tie some threads together here. So just for context, the first episode of this series was, was with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, who, you know, I don't know whether you've read Transcend or not, his new book, but he basically revisits every single word Maslow ever wrote and really writes about what you just described, that self-actualization in many ways is almost getting to this point where we can transcend our own needs and really think about adding value to the greater good, which speaks to what you mentioned earlier, Stephen Post and why good things happen to good people and taking care of others and adding value is really good for us as well. It's not really a, an either or sort of scenario. So what does that mean for education? Well, we certainly believe that that means, you know, whatever you're growing towards or becoming, ideally, at some point, you'll want to contribute which is very personal for me because my dissertation was on eudaimonia. So the cultivation of virtue and like, you know, contributing all those sorts of things. So if we pull away from just like the flourishing and the measure conversation for a sec, what do you think that looks like in an education system? You just mentioned sort of regenerative education. We're talking about a different system, I think, on some level, a very different system in some ways. What does that look like to you? Yeah, radically different from what I experienced, um, with a few exceptions. I mean, the exceptions taught me a lot. I can think back to my second grade teacher where there was such warmth in the classroom, and it was unlike anything I experienced before or since. <laughs> and I'm glad you mentioned Stephen Post. Stephen and I were just um, Stephen's a good friend and oh, awesome, author. cool. Yeah, we we wrote a book um, a few years ago together, and and um, very good friend. And oh, tell us the title. Tell us the title. We'll put it. in Oh, the show. that book was called "The Heart of Religion," and it's about spiritual empowerment for benevolent service. Cool. Um, Stephen and I were just uh, quoted uh, yesterday in an article that came out in the Greater Good magazine. This is um, produced Berkeley. by the Berkeley folks. Yeah. And so it was an interesting article, and we, we both know this pediatrician who has a practice that um, foregrounds kindness. It's not just about your physical health. It's about how you're learning as a child through your interactions with your pediatrician to become more kind and all of the benefits that that will accrue to others and to you, to your own physical health over your life course. And so Stephen and I were both quoted on the importance of kindness for physical well-being, which, which is, um, I think, catching on. And, that, and that's what I think we see in the most regenerative education 
spaces. So I've been asking this question about um, any context in which I find myself. Are we becoming more fully alive in this setting? And we know from, you know, Gallup and others have talked about the school cliff where students become less engaged over time. Um, I think something like eight out of 10 elementary school students are engaged, and then it drops to six out of 10 in middle school, and then four out of 10 in high school. And then if you extend that to teachers, only about 30% of teachers, three out of 10, are fully engaged. And so it just, it seems like this process is designed to disengage us. And this is why, um, you know, I think this is one of the reasons why Ken Robinson's TED Talk is the most popular one with 80, you know, 70 or 80 million views. I forget how, however many, but the title was, Do Schools Kill Creativity? Which, by, and, by the way, Matt, the late Ken Robinson, you know, um, <clears throat> rest in peace. Like, obviously, he's, he's a big miss. Um, that's the TED Talk that basically pushed me into my dissertation program. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> well, why, you know, why does it resonate with 70 million people? Because it, it speaks directly to our experience. And we experience something in education that is profoundly regenerative and transformative and super rare. And sometimes only in the extracurriculars, not in the core classes. So he says, um, you know, I, I just love, love this phrase, which I, which I've, you know, basically committed to memory, which is that as, as children grow up, we educate them progressively from the waist up, and then we focus on their heads, and then slightly to one side, meaning, meaning sort of the left brain rather than the, the right brain. And so, you know, he, he talks about, um, you know, why don't we incorporate dance into our education every day the way we do math and so all of this kind of thing so i so i think that you know what's really important for us to ask about education or about about any other space is what is regenerative here or what is extractive and i think a lot of people students teachers um, looking at both sides of the coin experience educational settings as extractive they're not allowing us to become fully alive they're not connecting with our deepest sense of purpose and the specific contribution we might make for the greater good and so we need to become more intentional i think it happens in some spaces i have had these experiences but they are the exception not the rule so if we ask this question am i becoming more fully alive through this education process? Am I experiencing a sense of regeneration here? The seed. Yes. Right? Yes. Are, are you sprouting right. or are you withering? Right. And I can look around and ask, you know, how are the teachers doing? How are the other students doing? And so what is it about the conditions of the soil here that might need enriching so that we're oriented towards full flourishing not just for myself, but for all people without exception, in a planet that's healthy overall, that's not being degraded because all of our um, broader processes are just as extractive as what we experience individually in the education system. So are we enriching the soil? I mean, there's a big movement now in terms of regenerative agriculture pointing out that we're turning living soil into dirt, dead 
useless dirt. And this is a this is a, an existential threat for all life on Earth. You know, to to what extent does that process of turning living soil into dead dirt mirror our experience as individuals going through an educational sort of assembly line or machine? So, so I think that these are these start to orient us to the different domains of flourishing that I alluded to earlier. And if we really treasure flourishing, then why do we only measure sort of academic proficiency? And maybe we ask students if they're depressed or slightly less depressed and, or whatever, but we don't um, routinely make it a point to, to signal that we care about flourishing by even asking about it and then by trying to measure and intervene accordingly. So there's much work to be done and I'm, I'm glad to be talking with, with you because I know you're promoting this in so many ways in your own work. And Shipley as well. I'm I'm really glad to have connected with Shipley. Yeah. Well, thank you. We we feel the same about you. And at some point, I'm going to want to chat maybe a bit about our work together with the consortium and the conferences and things of that nature. Um, but at the moment, I just I really really love so much of what you said and want to tie it together with some things we've touched on in other episodes. So the title of of SBK's episode was Inspiration, Not Evaluation. Mm, mm. And that's what I think, frankly, I, I hear you saying, right, is sprouting, not withering. And remember, he's coming very much from a humanistic perspective as well. And Maslow and like, how do we help human beings become their best selves? Regenerative, not just pulling out, you know, sort of in a very utility driven way, what these people can provide to an economy or GDP, right? Like, that's not ultimately what's going to create really profound change and, and collective flourishing, right? And GDP is not a regenerative measure itself. It, right. it, it actually goes up the more extractive the processes become right. up to a point. It's a short-term metric. In the long run, GDP will, will fall. <laughs> <laughs> so what, you know, what it, the interesting question, I think, is what does that mean for the soil then, right? And the system and sort of how we surround people. And, you know, we had Lydia Denworth on who's written a terrific bestseller on friendship. And she talked about a lot of times the way we isolate or seclude or push people away from like leveraging friendships and social settings and classrooms and learning and things like that. Like that might be a consideration for the soil. Because you look at any model of flourishing, Harvard's or anyone else's, and there is one consistency across it all, and that's positive relationships. You're right? you, it, you just can't find a model. <laughs> I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, if you're aware of one, right? That, that excludes it. Yes. We, we had Stephen Kotler on and he talked about studies that show like one of the best predictors of quote unquote grittiness and in, in learners and high schoolers is how much flow they experience in a given activity, right? Those sorts of things. And so what I think I hear you saying is how do we really kind of till the soil in a way that leverages these things that we're finding out about human flourishing and, and optimal human functioning, right? Um, here's the pushback. And I want to ask you about this specifically, and you know this all too well. What about achievement? And... I understand why, but I love to tease out a little bit when people look at the Harvard measure, what's absent from that compared to a PERMA measure or something along those lines. Well, a lot of times it's that achievement lens. And then people will say, well, why do schools exist? 
academic achievement to learn stuff, stuff like that. So what do you, you know, what do you say to that and that sort of natural tension? I, by the way, don't think it's either or. That's why I love flow. I think there's yes. a demand. Right. Well, that, that's where I, that's what I'm going to say as well. I, you know, what I've discovered from my own experience as a student, but also working with students is that if students are dysregulated, then learning is impossible. And so I always now start my classes with a one word check-in. And this, this speaks to, to open space. So do we have even a moment at the beginning of our classes to just ask people, how are you doing in this moment? In one word, one word to, to describe your emotional experience. Or are we so busy with academic um, issues that we can't even spend you know, a few seconds to ask that question. So in a Zoom context, you just type it into the chat box. Some students say that they're energized. Some students say that they're grieving. Some students say that they're exhausted, the, the full range of experiences. And so once we um, connect with each other and can regulate, this is the sort of uh, what do they call this? This is Bruce Perry's um, neurosequential model. So once you regulate, then you can start to relate to people. And that was your point before about the importance of relationships. And then once you've related um, successfully, then you can move on to reason and then you can learn. But um, there's a great book that I, I like to, to promote whenever I can. I was walking through the education library at Harvard and the title jumped off the shelf at, at me because uh, it's so unusual. The title is We Dare Say Love. And it was a book about um, the Oakland Public School District that was under a federal order to do something about um, really terrible um, dispar racial disparities in achievement and in the use of punitive measures against students. And so they opened this sort of liminal space where you could experiment, you could try something different. And the school district was able to bring in community leaders to help run some classes. They didn't necessarily have um, traditional educational credentials, but they had love. And so they, they brought in, well, they started with a listening process and they decided that love was going to be the foundation of everything that they did, and it was um, it was enormously important because some of the the learning um, difficulties and the academic disparities stem from a, a lack of trust, a well earned lack of trust in the adults in the system, administrators and and teachers. And so, how do you begin to create a regenerative context? It has to start with love. So, you know, there's there's uh, great books on this, The Challenge to Care in Schools um, by Nell Noddings says that the caring relation is the ultimate reality of life. And there's a university in California that has um, engraved into the stone outside one of its uh, buildings, the pursuit of truth in the company of friends. So if we create an open space where we can relate to each other as human beings, I think the learning becomes deeper. And so we're not trying to replace um, a focus on achievement with uh, something that's at odds with it. We just know that achievement's already measured to death. <laughs> so we don't necessarily <laughs> need that. Our society loves to try to measure achievement. Um, and so there's nothing wrong 
with um, with assessing that, but it becomes such a narrow fixation that it stamps out the most important thing, which is love and creating this caring community um, in which we can explore not only you know what we're doing in this math class, for example, but you know what's the point of this? What where are we headed collectively with our uh, our mathematical learning. And there's a great book I would recommend to everyone, um, Mathematics for Human Flourishing by Francis Sue. And, mm. and Francis Sue was a graduate student at Harvard in the doctoral program and was very close to dropping out. And an act of loving grace by a faculty member kept him in the program. And he carried that with him in, into how he, you know, basically does everything, grounds everything in flourishing. And interestingly enough, the final chapter of that book is on love, because love is sort of the virtue that gives unity to all the other virtues. And so math is a pathway to flourishing because it helps us see the unseen. There's something that math allows us to do as human beings that we can't do without it. And so we need to help everyone um, gain that capacity in order to fully flourish, in order to make the most difference in the world and to participate in uh, deep communion with other people, we have to have these shared languages. And so uh, I think it's just wonderful the way um, this book talks about the point of mathematics is flourishing. And so it's not um, that this student is good in math and that one is not good. So let's focus on the good student and let's put the other student in another track or something. It's about the, the, the realization that everybody has a certain starting point and everybody can cultivate excellence in any subject or in any discipline with the right kind of nurturing environment, a caring environment. And so, so Francis experienced an uncaring environment and then one exception showed him an alternative. And that's, you know, and so he goes on to become president of the Mathematical Association of America or something like this. And so, you know, it, it does make a difference and it enhances learning. And in fact, learning's not possible, real learning is not possible without a caring context um, in which, you know, teachers are free to care. Because that's, that's a big issue is that um, teachers are so put upon. So I, I don't want any of this to come across as though I'm blaming teachers. Teachers have um, an impossible task. Right. Right. Yeah. And part of, part of the conversation we're having here is around like, what, what really does matter? Right. To, to learners, but to teachers and mentors as well. And you just said it like that sort of caring capacity is always present when it comes to excellence and flourishing. And, and, in the episode we're releasing, um, Next week, Stephen Kotler, executive director of uh, the Flow Research Collective, you know, he talked about like he's probably trained, you know, as many kind of peak or elite performers as any other human being, right? Like this is what he's devoted decades to. And what does he say is like pretty ubiquitous, almost always present, is at some point in their lives, they had a really good coach or mentor or teacher or trainer or something along those lines. You just do not get to your best self without that. You flourish in spite of all the other stuff that you experienced <laughs> because that one person, again, I can think back to Mrs. Ellsworth's second grade class. That was, 
that was um, so so much of an outlier, really. And you know, I don't think. I mean, I'll I'll, I'll give you my own experience. So I have taught a lot of classes for over two decades. My training was almost zero in terms of teaching. You know, college professors are not trained as teachers. We're trained as researchers. And, and I think we had a one credit non-graded course on college teaching or something like that. So we don't get a lot of instruction anyway, but we get absolutely no instruction on how to create a caring, supportive space. And so that comes from other things. So I, you know, I, I really like uh, Martin Buber's classic book, I and Thou. This is the, this is the insight that, um, that we sometimes miss because we think love is about what I have inside me and I give that to others or what somebody else has. But Buber says in I and Thou that love does not cling to an I. It is in between I and Thou. And so this is this is why we attend to the space. Um, you know, the perception that love is between suggests that maybe a teacher has an important contribution to make. Mrs. Ellsworth certainly did um, for me. But the contribution must be organized with the contributions of others, of other students, other teachers, administrators, parents, community members, with great practical wisdom according to a unifying grammar in a manner that signifies a life-affirming story. So if we can understand this and begin to intentionally cultivate this through, um, you know, when teachers are learning how to be teachers and when they're on the job, you know, you learn a lot through on-the-job training uh, as a teacher, then you can get in touch with this sort of sacred regenerative work this you know kind of flow of active love that brings greater unity in a world of of so much disconnection and extraction so i think if we model this then we're helping we're helping students well and teachers i learned this as well we're helping all of us become more aware of the need to be making our own specific contribution to regenerative contexts in every sphere of life. So this is for the family, this is for the business, this is for the government, this is wherever we find ourselves. We can ask this question, is this context taking more than it gives or giving more than it takes? And that's really the fundamental question. And then we can use our mathematics and our other academic skills to serve that greater aim. And without that end in mind, we get the kind of aimless, disconnected, extractive, degenerative processes that we see throughout the world. So we have to model it at the small group level. But I, I really like this book on the science of abundance by Jim Ritchie Dunham. And he talks about co-hosting in five relationships all the time and we're not trained or prepared to do this so what are these five relationships first you have to co-host with yourself you have to know yourself and we spend so much of our time coping in various ways that we disconnect from our deepest selves 
So we have to co-host with ourselves, and we have to be very, very clear about our values and what's healthy for us and not be distracted by all of the uh, pathways of unhealthy coping that are available to us. All of the, you know, the World Happiness Report a couple of years ago declared the United States a mass addiction society and not just about substances, but working and shopping and eating and all these other things. So we need to, we need to co-host with ourselves um, very deeply and very skillfully. We need to co-host with the other person that we're with. We need to co-host with the broader group in which we're embedded. We need to co-host with nature and we need to co-host with creative spirit, which for some people will call that God. But if we're doing all of these, all of this co-hosting simultaneously, then it becomes, I think, much more difficult to um, wittingly or unwittingly participate in extractive processes because you can see the damage, for example, if you're co-hosting with nature that you're inflicting on nature, you can see the damage you're inflicting on yourself. You can see very clearly the damage you're inflicting on others. So you will reject extractive processes if this has been part of the conditions of your soil as you are um, growing and flourishing. And so I think we can be more intentional about this in our educational spaces. And this is what I've been trying to do with, with great collaborators um, for over a decade as I got really sort of burned out on the conventional process. And uh, so in my last university at the University of Akron, we offered unclasses and we called them unclasses because we wanted to signify that this is really the opposite, you know, for students, this is the opposite of every class you've had before. So you're going to help create the syllabus and we might meet downtown instead of in a classroom. And we might not have, you know, conventional grades throughout the semester. There might be space for silence and rest and contemplation. And then the project might be about you connecting more deeply with your best possible self, rather than just producing another, um, you know, extractive uh, piece of research where you take something from the community and never give anything back. And so there's a lot of uh, decentering of the self that was going on in those kinds of spaces. And we had special permission from the administration to do this. Otherwise, probably most of us wouldn't have even tried. So, so that's where the, the space itself can become more supportive of open, caring, regenerative processes where we can all feel more fully alive. So I'm curious, I, I think it's worth pursuing and interesting. I don't, I don't know that it's a tension, um, but I think it's an area of nuance that sometimes gets lost in conversations around flourishing or, or you know, more specifically positive psychology and, and things of this nature. You mentioned Jim Ritchie Dunham and this idea of kind of co-hosting and disconnecting. And so, you know, for context in our, in the previous interview we just did, um, Paul Wong came up and I, I mentioned him. And then actually our, the uh, Mike, one of the people we were interviewing said, oh, that's so funny. Just his name came up last week as well. And of course you and I exchanged a couple emails and why do I bring up Paul Wong? Cause I think there's, so there's what you described, which is people kind of tiring of viewing the human condition from only a deficit model, right? So in comes positive psychology and these other sort of approaches that say like, how do we build the good and how do we really leverage those sorts of things? It's a different lens. 
And I think what, what Paul's suggesting, and I know he's coming in to teach a course, I think at Harvard, maybe as a part of your program. And I, I just wrote up some commentary for him um, this morning, actually. I think what he's suggesting is that like, we, we need to reckon with and make space for dealing with languishing in order to flourish. And that there's, I think, generally speaking, an appropriate role of unpleasantness in our lives, right? And when we talk about soil and seeds and love and all that sounds awesome, right? And then and then there's this like, yeah, but some of the bad stuff is really important too, or quote unquote bad, some of the unpleasant stuff, right? How do you think about that balance or that maybe perceived tension? Do you see them as complementary, yin and yang? You know, how do you think about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up and I'm sorry I didn't deal with this more directly. So the soil's only healthy if it has manure. <laughs> and there's, there's this wonderful um, way of living that says, you know, I am the manure. I am the good and the bad. I am all of these things. And so I, I would share, um, again, from the book Mathematics and Flourishing, the definition of flourishing in that book, which is wholeness. And it's partly wholeness in a context of living with integrity, even in challenging circumstances. So we may not have positive emotions all the time. Um, and that's, that's part of the human condition. So to love, mean, to really love, means that we become more vulnerable, that the other person's suffering becomes our suffering. And so in this book I mentioned with uh, Stephen Post and, and our uh, our other friend, Margaret Paloma, where we wrote about the heart of religion. The heart of religion is love. And there's a chapter in that book about the cup of joy and suffering. And so the, the joy is not independent of the suffering. If you're above the fray, you're not really loving. And so, you know, what I find in, in my own um, personal life, in my teaching career, in my research, in the community of practice that we host through the Human Flourishing Program, is that um, there's a lot of joy, but there's, there's also a realistic engagement with, with suffering, with the inherent suffering that is, is all around us. And so we become contributors to a more regenerative, space. And I, I love how Jim Ritchie Dunham phrases it. He talks about, you know, what is your specific contribution to a vibrant space of trust? So we contribute to, to trust by being open to the suffering, by, you know, by noticing. So it, this, there's this journal article that I wrote with um, a graduate student and two undergraduates who had taken my classes, and we were talking about open space, and um, and this comes out in the or came out in the Journal of Transformative Education, and um, I think the the most important quote in that article. I'm going to try to pull it up here um, very quickly. It seems to me, I'm just sitting here thinking about that when you talk about things like love and trust, those are acts that inherently require vulnerability and vulnerabil yes. vulnerability requires distress tolerance. Yes, you have to be able to sit with uncomfortable emotions because you're not 
weighed down by empathy fatigue, but you're oriented towards um, meaningful, effective compassion. So you feel something, but you don't just sit there with the negative feelings. You're actually able to do something. And sometimes what we do is just be present to that. And that actually is healing. So this is the quote from, from this um, journal article. One of the um, graduate teaching fellows in my class later shared her perspective about a, an interaction that we had in the class. And she said, and I'll quote here, students experienced a moment of being seen fully, both in their strengths, but also in their flaws in a classroom context. So that's the quote. And we both agreed that this is a very rare occurrence to be seen fully and not just as gritty overachievers, but as human beings with some uncertainty about you know, the mysteries of life, <laughs> some sadness about the drift of political systems and other sort of large institutional processes. So is it possible within an education space to be seen fully, or is that only for the private sphere, for our family lives or our church communities or something? Um, is it possible in a workplace to be, to be seen fully? And we have a project on compassion capability at the group level that is oriented towards, among other things, this idea of opening and closing boundaries so that people can bring in some of their personal life into the workplace setting and receive compassion. But there's sort of limits to what can be done in different contexts. And so it's not an, a fully open boundary, but it is a somewhat permeable boundary. And the same thing with education. There are some things that a teacher should just refer to a counselor. And in hospitals, a doctor should just refer to a chaplain. But um, if we're not in relationship and we haven't established a vital space of trust and we can't fully see each other, we don't even know when to make the referral. So, uh, so I do think that there, um, there are points at which the, the teacher's expertise um, is limited and we need some additional support. But for the most part, what I've experienced is that the creation of these soil conditions that allow us to, to fully see and fully be seen go a long way to helping, helping learning ultimately and then helping the transformation of the world. And that's what makes it regenerative is that ultimately it's pointing to something outside of our own self-interest because ultimately our self-interests are bound up with the interests of everyone else and the broader world. Transcendence, right? To, to bring it back full circle. That's, that's right. Great. Yeah. That's that's beautiful. Um, I want to be respectful of your time here. Will you tell us a little bit about where you know folks can find you or contact you or learn more about the Harvard Flourishing Program? I know you said you don't have social media, but well, I'm trying. I'm trying right now. My <laughs> I tried to open an account and it got shut down immediately. Uh, someone was helping me upload content, and I guess they think that there's some kind of problem happening. There. Okay. But anyway, so I'm trying to join social media. In the meantime, just go to the Human Flourishing Program's website um, at Harvard. And usually, if you just type in Human Flourishing, we're one of the first hits in a, in a search engine. But Human Flourishing at Harvard. And we have a page for our community of practice. You can learn more about that. We have lots of educators in the community of practice. 
we have uh, we have a, a web app that will soon be available for download to the different phone platforms that's totally free and you can assess your individual flourishing and some other measures and you can be um, given suggestions about activities to enhance your flourishing. And so there's lots of uh, free resources. All of our measures of flourishing and related constructs are in the public domain with a Creative Commons license. So with attribution, any school district can use them and um, as part of their um, dashboard that they're putting together. So we're, we're just delighted to um, be in these conversations and uh, talk about the importance of, again, as I think I alluded to, um, measuring what we say we treasure. And then once we measure it, we have to treasure it by doing something with it. So um, let's, let's all go on this, um, this journey towards a more regenerative world. And I think it can start with um, education, certainly the family and the church and other institutions have important roles, but um, we can be much more intentional and um, effective. Well said. Well said. So, uh, Matt, this was a real pleasure. I'm glad we did this. Was, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for making the time. Thanks, Nick. Always great to talk with you. Same here. So we'll talk again soon. Our show is produced by the Shipley School, an independent pre-K through grade 12 day school, rethinking education and daring to hope that we can, in fact, build a better future. Come on and join us.